Hello, hello, it's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. Today I'm here with Mr. Patrick Perry. Patrick, how are you today? Hey, good morning, Jacob. Great. Awesome, awesome. Thank you for coming on. And folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to like, comment, share, subscribe, review, all the things. It really helps me out, and thanks in advance. Patrick, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? I'm with Zscaler. I've been here for a few years now, but before that, I spent 22 years in the military, ultimately spending my time traveling the world, seeing stuff, doing some fun things, but a lot of it was with technology. So thankfully, I built a whole bunch of skill sets that were pretty transferable to life after the military. And luckily, I found myself here at Zscaler. Oh, that's awesome. Tell us about your work at Zscaler. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So here at Zscaler, you know, after about four years, you know, we run through a few different positions. I've done everything from staying really intimately deep with our compliance team to help us get after things like DOD and FedRAMP kind of certifications per se and navigate those waters. I've worked a lot with our federal strategy teams. I got here right when our federal organization was standing up. I think I put employee number 11 of the whole federal mm -hmm. team. So thankfully I was part of a lot of those kind of initiatives as well. And now I serve as the field CTO for our DOD and IC sectors. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And what a great opportunity to jump in there and get all that ramped up. That sounds like an amazing experience. Well, tell us a little bit about Zscaler. What is it? Yeah. So Zscaler really is this next generation company that's delivering cybersecurity kind of capabilities. When you think of different security capabilities that are delivered usually from the networking type of environment. Zscaler, what they did, they were way ahead of the game 13, 14 years ago. They decided that, hey, with the move to things like the cloud and things like mobile devices, that the whole paradigm shift of where security is actually being implemented for the network needs to also move. And so what they really did is started building out a cloud delivered environment to give you all of those security services as a service. And I know that's a little redundant service as a service, but it is what it is. But for the most part, think of, you know, the old school switchboards in the sky when telephony was a very basic capability where you had to call the switchboard operator and then they validated a few things and they connected you to your service. We follow the same principles in the sense that everything kind of connects to us, kind of like a switchboard. And then we do a lot of security checks and capabilities or needs against it. And then we patch those connections together after they've been validated to be fully secure. The irony, and we were a little ahead of the game per se, is that the whole methodology fits very nicely into a concept we'll talk to a little bit, which is zero trust. Talk to us about the larger pieces and parts of Zscaler. Yeah. So we'll focus in on how we kind of break down security and the world of securing things to things. Cause you know, the whole world is like an internet of things now, but we really focus in on how do we connect users to applications in a secure manner, whether those applications are hosted in the internet by a service provider that may not be trusted at all hosted by a semi-trusted service provider, like something in AWS or something like that, or something that you just host yourself. And you trust a lot more in, you know, because you're able to administer some of the security part of that. And that's what we call security for users because everything we do is very flow based. That really breaks down into two primary capabilities, something that we call internet access based security. So again, really using the internet as your backbone and accepting the fact that it's very hostile and needs a lot of security applied yeah. to it. And then something that we call private access, which is kind of, again, back to that whole we do administer a lot of the environment. It's not fully trusted. So you're still trying to extrapolate security of your data from the environment that you administer, but you still do administer and own a lot of it and therefore can apply it. So that's private access. 
But then we also have what we call security for things like workloads. So how does your workloads interoperate with other workloads or think of like IoT and OT, things that don't have actual people involved, but services that are working together. And then we also deliver security for that as well. I have firsthand experience with Zscaler and I, I agree it's a great product and I think that's excellent explanation. So thank you for that. You talked about some certifications that you all were going after, FedRAMP, DoD impact levels. Talk to us about FedRAMP and what is it, first of all, why is it important? And yeah. also would be very interested to hear about the approach that you all took and maybe some yeah. lessons learned. FedRAMP is a very important thing because if you've been around the government for a while, They've had things dating back 20, 30 years ago. They've had different methods in which to validate security of their environment and more importantly, security of the vendor's capabilities that are coming into the environment. There was a huge initiative 20, 30, whatever years ago to get away from what they called gods, government off the shelf and go towards cops, so commercial off the shelf and really take advantage of the amazing ecosystem that we have here, especially in America, because things were going again, more and more to these cloud delivered kind of capabilities. FedRAMP was like, hey, well, how can we take a lot of the burden to validate that security of the vendor and how it's being delivered? and kind of do what they call a validate once, use multiple times. So FedRAMP office was stood up a while back. And again, their major goal was to bring people together, cloud community capabilities, as well as customers, and then get one organization or three, because there's two different ways to get validated in FedRAMP. You can do it agency level where the agency sponsors you, or you go directly to what they call the JAB, the Joint Advisory Board, where three organizations, GSA, DHS, and DOD, they come together and they are your sponsoring as a committee. And what's most important about it is they use controls out of 800-53, and then they basically run you through all the security requirements as if they were going to use you and sponsor you. And then in the end, they sign off, hey, this is what we found. This is what we were willing to accept as a risk. Think of like a POAM or something. And then these were the things that as a customer, we realized we would have to do to still meet these 800-53 controls. And all of that then gets you what they call an ATO, and after that, boom, another agency can come back. And instead of doing all that work that organization just did, they can adopt the work that's been done, apply it to their environment and do hopefully that 10 to 15% overhead above what the other agency already did. As we shift gears to how Zscaler approached this. So we got into this business 14 years ago as a cloud service in a commercial market. We started hiring leadership to come in and shape our compliance effort in our strategy to grow into these other businesses. So we've been doing it now for, I think, about six years. And what we really did was we broke down all the things at a strategic level, FedRAMP, DoD impact level, SOC, all these other things and said, how are we going to get after all this stuff? So we actually have a very mature approach because we hired people that have been doing this for a while. And we kind of join forces on a lot of these kind of things and do them together. So it's essential to also build a partnership with the community of effort that are your three PAOs. So at this time, we're lucky in the sense that we've been doing it for a while now. So we're ahead of the game because it usually takes a couple years to get FedRAMP authorized and then even more to get DOD impact level. But as I explained mm -hmm. for our user-based security and that kind of stuff, most of our capabilities are already at the FedRAMP high jab level and even half of them are at the DOD impact level five, working towards the rest of it as well. You put in a lot of effort at the beginning, but now it starts really kind of showing the government that you're invested as a partner to deliver a secure service. Okay. Well, that's a great description. Thank you for that. 
Moving into the DoD impact levels, can you talk to us about that and what went into that beyond what was required by FedRAMP? In the end, there's four primary impact levels if you go out and read the DoD SRGs, Security Reference Guide and the SCCA, the Secure Cloud Computing Architecture Guide. And those are now impact level two, four, five, and six. And we'll kind of run through two and six real fast and then focus on four and five. So two basically aligns directly to the FedRAMP moderate. Just think of it as like, hey, this is your capability that's a little bit above commercial. We're going to get it validated and authorized, but it's really kind of still a commercial kind of service per se with a few restrictions and roughly 300 or so controls out of 853 checks. Impact level six is actually in the classified secret region environment. So it's everything that they actually asked you to do impact level five, but then take it out of the internet, stick it in a, you know, a box somewhere and have private circuits from all over the place because it's at a secret government level. So again, obviously not a lot of people can use that, but the real focus is impact level four and five, because that's the sweet spot where you have things like more important secure information like CUI. Everybody's talking about it these days, control on classified information. That's where the DIB works in. That's impact level four. And if you look at it at a control base, it basically aligns to FedRAMP high, which is also the level that, again, has the most controls from a FedRAMP perspective. I think it's sitting around 400 or 520 or something like that. I, I always forget. Between impact level four and five, that's when the DOD says, this from us as an organization, we must have this level of security to even get after Kui. Now, from the FedRAMP perspective, you can actually get to Kui with FedRAMP moderate plus. And we won't go into that because that could be like another 20, 30 minutes of discussion. And then the only other real difference between impact level four and impact level five is the ability to then support what they call NSS, National Secure Services. And that's when you're getting into the very borderline before you get into that impact level six, a secret level. But both of those are quite a bit more rigorous because the DOD has its own, not only 853 controls, but roughly 18 plus general controls where you have to meet their needs of things like auditing, analytics, threat sharing, and a whole bunch of other things. That's all very interesting. On the FedRAMP side, do you know how long roughly it took you all to get through that process? Yeah, I would say on average, the jab process, again, that's kind of like the gold standard because again, you're getting validated at a much higher level by multi-agency. It on average is 18 to 24 months. Some yeah. of it is because of their pipeline. A lot of organizations want to get authorized. So they only pick, I think, six to nine organizations a year to go to the jab. But if you go through the agency, I've seen it as fast as like nine months. But that means you already have to have a lot of work done. You have to have that pre-work, getting the third-party auditors in there, getting ahead of the game so you don't have loads of different requirements from the external auditors to make changes. You want to get ahead of those things. So total work still 12 to 15 months, even just to get an agency level. Can you tell us maybe an estimate of how much additional effort was required to go get the impact levels opposed to the FedRAMP authorizations that you all were able to achieve? Depending on what FedRAMP level you work on, moderate or high, it really kind of matters. But the big one, honestly, is FedRAMP high jab versus agency. Jab, because the DOD is already mm -hmm. part of it. They were one of those signatories that sign off on your jab authorization. I wouldn't say you get into like the express lane and the DOD impact level side, but at least you already have a familiarity with their third party assessors and their auditing team to get validated through what they call also their JVT, their joint validation team. But I would say from our perspective as a jab authorized capability, it still took roughly nine plus months, months and months of continuous monitoring evaluation by their team 
and back and forth to, again, uplift some of those controls that the jab was okay with, but DOD wanted you to tweak it a little bit more to meet their needs. That's very interesting. How has Zscaler approached CMMC? As a service provider and a member of the DIB at the same time, we're looking at it very much like we looked at FedRAMP. You have to think of it as how are we approaching it to achieve it ourselves. Because again, we work with the DOD and therefore we work on contracts. We have to meet our own needs. But then it's the same time as how can we enable the DIB with our kind of capabilities to get after their CMMC requirements and zero trust at the same time? Because let's just be honest, you can kill two birds with one stone. It's a much easier day, especially when you're buying stuff. So Zscaler from an internal perspective, it's kind of status quo. We go after it just like we went after FedRAMP. We were validated by 800-53. I only need to go by 171. Let's line things up. Let's make it very intuitive for our team to get after both things at the same time. And then we just kind of ingrain it into our DNA. Thankfully, because we're an organization that's been invested in authorization processes that include external auditors, bringing in the whole trust but verify approach with like a third-party assessor makes sense. We're already very comfortable with that. We just added it to our pipeline and we're going after it. Can you talk to us about the shared responsibility between you as the security service provider and then the customer and how you all inform and enable the customers to make sure they're accounting for their responsibilities when it comes to the CMMC controls? Yeah, shared responsibility is probably the most important thing whenever you're using a cloud service. People always reference the shared responsibility on the pizza chart for cloud services. But more importantly than even that pizza matrix is the shared responsibility to secure your environment. There's not a day that doesn't go by where you hear that somebody lost their secrets, lost their data or something because of a failure to administer their environment in the most secure way. Change the admin password, block ports and protocols from being accessed from unauthorized areas, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things have been around, but a lot of people don't focus on the secure aspect of a shared responsibility. So in FedRAMP and CMMC, there is a shared responsibility matrix, the SRM, and that really outlines to the customer, hey, while Zscaler is going to deliver you this capability that meets this control for your need, you're responsible to configure it correctly, both in the cloud environment, as well as in the rest of your environment. We can't help you defend something that you don't configure correctly. If, if you've been in IT for a day or two, they've always had things like trusted reference architectures and that kind of stuff when it came to appliances, where they spent the time to say, hey, my capability with this capability and this capability, if you configure it this way, it's going to work properly. Think of it the same way. What we're saying is, hey, if you implement our environment in this way and configure it this way, we will meet the security concerns you need. That's a great description and a great approach. I really appreciate that. We mentioned Zero Trust a few times. Can you talk to us about its origins and actually what is it? In a nutshell, Zero Trust has been around for quite a while. People call it like the latest buzzword of the, of the COVID era. But in all reality, Zero Trust actually started being talked about as a concept as far back as the Jericho Forum with what they called the deperimatization efforts. And their whole idea back then was, hey, we've got users in and out of our perimeter and we got applications in and outside of our perimeter. And therefore, the way that we access it and secure those access methods have to change. This is all open information. You can go out there and research it. A lot of their stuff is still actually available for downloading. You can see all the great history. But then when you fast forward to where the term got adopted with Forrester and specifically John Kindervag, words matter. When people create things, they give it a name based on a reason. And those names really tell a lot of the story. And the reason why it's called zero 
trust is because, again, it was focused in on how networks were being managed and more importantly, how data was being secured over networks. And the concept that it was trying to say we need to get away from was zone-based security. If we've been around security forever, you know that either routers or firewalls, you stick them at the edges, and then you create these things called zones. You have your untrusted zone, you have your trusted zone, and then you have all these DMZs, demilitarization zones for those in-between trust levels. In zero trust, there's the word, no more trusting a zone, no more trusting the network itself to deliver on security. And security is two things. It is access. Everybody's so focused on the access part, which is very important. But remember, access is like locks and keys. If you still trust everybody to walk around willy-nilly with locks and keys all over the place, that's great. But bad people always defeat locks and keys. So what are you doing to stop bad people? So you have the access or what used to be categorized as AAA. Now you have things like in-depth advanced cybersecurity capabilities. So stuff that actually gets after the threat actors and stops them before they can actually start playing with your locks and keys. Tell us from your perspective, how does CMMC relate to zero trust? When you think about when the government was really trying to go after these two major things, CMMC, which is their external facing requirements to the rest of the dip and zero trust, where it's kind of their internal requirements on how they're doing business. They're kind of a relationship and they kind of started at the same time. You know, you can go back six or so years ago where CMMC was first starting to be discussed in the offices of the Pentagon was also the time Zero Trunk was first starting to get kind of played with like, what is this concept? And ironically as well, they fundamentally are actually together because again, the whole concept of Zero Trust is to actually stop thinking of your networking environment in zones of security and people that are always on the inside are always trusted and people on the outside are always untrusted. And when you think of how the DOD really needs to interact with this partner, it's holy defense industrial base, it needs to change its whole architecture to support how do we all work together better in a more secure manner at all times. So they're kind of joined at the hip. What I would offer is CMMC in many ways, even though they're using 800 which personally, Pat's personal opinion, it's a use case scenario of 800-53 controls. So it's not like it's this brand new concepts and controls. They just word them different to kind of relate more to the use cases of the data sharing approach that the DIB brings to the DOD. Well, Zero Trust is also trying to get after that same problem. So in many ways, Zero Trust is kind of the concept that's floating in these ideas, these high-level strategic requirements from an operational perspective to change how we do things. Now, they don't use the right terminology in between each other to draw those parallels a little bit clearer and more concisely. But when you really look underneath the hood, they actually are very, very supportive of each other. They just need to be tweaked to really kind of work together in the same level. Interesting. So we've all seen the federal approach to zero trust. We've seen the White House, their cyber strategy. NIST has issued guidance on it. DHS, DOD has guidance on it and probably many more agencies. What are your thoughts overall on the federal approach and maybe some significant differences between the various agency approaches and some thoughts of how we can actually make this happen? Because of all the things that were going on, solar winds was a huge reason why zero trust, that concept really started kind of making sense to the government. Because when you think about how that exploit worked inside environments, there was so much trust at so many levels. So, hey, how are we going to fix this? Let's go look at something that's called zero trust. But all jokes aside, 
The White House guidance is great, but it's very high level. And again, it's trying to tell every other organization, this is serious, you're going to do it. So I take that as a good guiding document, but it's really not the granular thing that's going to help people. CISA's maturity model and their other zero trust kind of efforts are really good in the sense that they kept things at a high strategic conceptual level with some examples that guide organizations, especially in the U.S. government, to try to measure success. Am I really shifting how I do things from different approaches? I think NIST 800-207 is absolutely amazing. I think it's probably one of the best documents, not only because of their, I want to say near commitment to leverage what the industry had already been working on instead of kind of making their own thing out of the word and then rebranding it, unfortunately, and maybe losing the DNA and the concept behind it. NIST 800-207 really did a good job on setting that foundation. I, I honestly cannot wait for them to come out with version two, because I think that maturity is going to be just a huge leap. I don't know if it's coming out or anything, so I'm completely guessing, but they usually make newer versions. The DOD one, I have a love-hate relationship with it. We're going to be in the DOD for 22 plus years. I was very lucky to work in some very special units where I got to build a lot of my own stuff, but we were upheld to high standards to secure data. And therefore, I feel like I have a really tight relationship with the concepts of why they write so much security doctrine to try to keep the norm in there. But I think they also might have missed the mark slightly by getting too prescriptive with their activities. When you look at the DoD strategy guide, you really see how they laid out a lot of good strategies and concepts, but then got real prescriptive on the technology aspect, which unfortunately for an organization in the army alone is a million plus people. The DoD is four and a half million, I believe. How do you be prescriptive without telling people where it even begins? You give them the flexibility of saying, hey, you own your service, your MILDEP, your COCOM AOR, but we're not going to tell you how to kind of gauge where you're going to do zero trust, but we are going to kind of gauge and measure the way that you implement the technology. I think that's going to be very hard. And I hope that there's a version two of that. Now, the zero cross reference architecture stuff that DOD put out was pretty good because it was pretty vague and it kind of stuck with NIST 800-207 a little bit more. That's awesome. Thank you for your insights on that. Where do you think Zscaler fits into the pillars of zero trust? And I know that some of the pillars vary depending on what document you're looking at, but overall, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. In the end, I think everybody kind of universally recognizes seven aspects of zero trust. Some people call them pillars. Some people call them pillars with cross-functional requirements, like you pointed out. In the end, though, the most common pillars that people accept are your endpoint, your identity, your network, your workloads, and then your data. Then you have things like analytics, and then you have things like automation orchestration. Just to make sure we don't get into a philosophical debate. What I would offer up is that where zero trust fits in is in a quasi network with endpoint, identity, and orchestration and automation. And the reason why I kind of say that is because when you look at 800-207, they highly emphasize the concept of a policy enforcement point. And CISA actually calls out that term a lot too. While DISA kind of calls it out, they kind of shove it into the automation orchestration pillar, which is a very interesting approach, but it is what it is. What I would offer, because Zscaler sits as that switchboard or what we like to reference as the zero trust exchange in the middle of everything where we tie things in. Again, going back to the NIST 800-207 little picture, they show the policy enforcement point kind of sitting in the middle and they show all the other parts of zero trust plugging into it 
to again, provide that better together story, that one plus one equals three out of your security capabilities. And that's exactly what Zscaler does because we sit in the middle as that security validation proxy per se, that exchange, and we pull in your identity to bring identity into the picture. And we pull in your endpoint aspects and we make that part of that decision-making process as well. To me, we just fit perfectly into the needs of tying in endpoint identity, the network, and orchestration automation very cleanly. Now we obviously play and we assist in the other pillars like data and application workloads and even analytics. But I would say where we really play is the forcing function and that policy enforcement point are those four pillars specifically. Is there a particular pillar of zero trust that you think is especially challenging for an organization to sufficiently address? I definitely do. Again, not getting into the philosophical debate on what is really a pillar and what is not and that kind of stuff. I think the biggest hangups right now are identity and data. And I don't think it's because they're really hard. I think it's really hard to start. Identity has been going on forever. We've been able to use some form of access-based control for years and years and years now. The problem is it's always been disjointed. It hasn't been unified. It definitely hasn't been unified in a concept like a policy enforcement one. So it's not that the organizations need to kind of reconstruct the way they do identity. Now, they may want to get a better capability out there that can get more granular in those attributes management, the ability to live assess, evaluate, and even change people's permissions from an identity perspective. But identity is kind of there. But how do we take what we have and really make it zero trustified? Now, data is kind of the weird one. We've all known data tagging has been a very important thing since the beginning of time, and we've all avoided it like a massive elephant in the ring. Why? Because data tagging is 99% incumbent on the data creator. The data creator never wants to take more time to add tags. If you ever work in the Department of Defense Intel community, where they always have to put those little parentheses and classify almost every sentence of things they do, you'll get an appreciation for how annoying data tagging could be, especially at the different levels the DOD wants to do. And I know I was very focused on the DOD right there, but I think it's also imperative because CMMC is going to have to also play well with that to meet those cooey needs because you can't just tag everything as cooey. The world wants to be that simple, but you can't. So it has to transcend one agency to other agencies and one agency out to the industrial base that supports things like the DOD and the other government agencies. So again, to recap, I think it's identity and data. I think identity is just how do we leverage what we have and do it better and integrate it. Data is, all right, how do we really go after this now? We've kind of avoided it for a long time. And where do you start when we have a bazillabytes worth of data already created and you can't zero trust it unless you start giving it some kind of tax? And obviously everybody is stepping in right now with, oh, hey, I got this really cool, fast thing called AI. Let me show you. So it's going to be interesting on how data specifically goes forward in a zero trust world. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add? Just that again. I would offer to everybody, zero trust and CMMC really are one thing. You have slightly different measurements of it, but you're really trying to get after the same thing, which is secure your data better, validate and manage who can access it and when, and protect it no matter where it goes. Neither of these things are very complicated, but they are very serious. So it's very important to step back, take a deep breath, lay out how you want to measure how you're getting after these things and drive towards it and don't let outside entities or whatever influence you to stay like what you're doing. What we've been doing has proven every minute of the day to not work.
we have to do better. And we all have kind of universally accepted that both zero trust is the way for the world to kind of look at security differently. And CMMC is the best way in which we can share from inside an agency to outside the agency in a data focused secure environment. So we have to get on these horses and we have to get better at what we're doing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. It's been great, Jacob. Thank you again for having me.